Thank you for listening to the Abundant Life Sermon Podcast. Abundant Life is based out of Lee Summit, Missouri and has campuses throughout the Kansas City metro area and online. We want to see your life changed by Jesus. For more information about Abundant Life or for locations and service times, visit livingproof.co. Thanks for listening. Abundant Life, good morning. So good to see you once again, wherever you're gathering with us from. We're glad that you've gathered for the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1, one more sermon from Daniel chapter 1. We are moving through the book of Daniel at the speed of light. Aren't we? I mean, Daniel chapter 1, already done. After today, then we're going to be in Daniel chapter 2. We're going to pick up the pace thereafter. But there's so much here, I don't want to rush through. Daniel chapter 1, let me share just a couple of things. I told you in the outset of our series, there's too much teaching just to do on Sunday morning. So we're going to be dropping some lessons that I have shot in a studio to supplement what we do on Sunday mornings. The first of which is going to be posted tomorrow on our sermon page. It's going to be additional teaching out of Daniel chapter 1. We're going to go deeper and dissect a little more than we can do on Sundays, and then we're going to do that every week thereafter to finish out this series. Also, I shared a couple of weeks ago that our food pantry has an all-time high in demand, all-time low of supply, specifically with meat, and uh, in response, you guys have brought thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds of meat to the food pantry. So there are people around our city having hamburgers, all right? And uh, I just want to say thank you for your generosity, for giving so sacrificially. And I don't stop now. The demand is still really high. But I just want to express how honored I am to be your pastor of such a generous, sacrificial people. Thank you for being living proof of a loving God to a watching world. Do you understand? That's what Daniel was in Babylon. He was what we like to say living proof of a loving God, of a holy God in a wicked, evil city. And this is what I want to talk about today as we finish out chapter 1. Daniel teaches us how to thrive while living in Babylonian captivity in an ungodly society. Here's what's amazing. When you study the life of Daniel, though he lived in captivity, he never lived with anything less than complete victory. See, his geographical situation didn't change his position. And do you understand, as a child of God, you have a position of victory already. 2 Corinthians 2.14, he always causes us to live triumphantly, 1 Corinthians 15. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Jesus said, I've come to give you life. You can have it more abundantly, and you can do that even in a Babylonian city, in a Babylonian society. You have a man here who lived his life in captivity, yet he never lived with anything less than freedom and liberty. And we need to learn from the life of Daniel because we are in this world, but we're not of this world. And one day, God is going to bring the kingdom of heaven to the kingdoms of this world, and paradise lost is going to be paradise regained. But in the meantime, we live in Babylon, in Babylon, but not of Babylon. Listen, while Daniel had no power in Babylon, he had profound influence in Babylon. This is what I want to talk about today. Well, Daniel had no power, he rose in influence. How do you rise in influence in a workplace, in a workspace where you're the only Christian there? Uh, where you might have a boss that is ungodly, that's hostile toward Christianity. How do you rise in influence in a school where it feels like, like I'm the only one here trying to follow Jesus? Think about this for just a moment. How, how do you rise in influence when you don't have power? See, power is not the same as influence. Power is built on titles, it's built on position, but influence is not power and it's not titles. Influence comes from something else. So you can have a title and position and not have influence. I know people with influence that have no title and position. You have Daniel, who's a captive. He had no rights whatsoever in Babylon, yet he rose in influence. And I want to talk about that today because I'm convinced part of the problem in modern America is the church has fought for the wrong thing. We have fought for power when we should have been fighting for influence so that now we have neither influence nor power. See, power is about position. Power is about politics. 
Now listen, I think every Christian has a responsibility to be the salt of society, Matthew chapter 5, which means we need godly people in government. I'm not dissing that. In fact, I just did two podcasts on our Watching World podcast where I interviewed about 10 or 12 members of our church that are running for office. We need godly people in government, apart from which we'll never have godly outcomes. But here's the reality. Our hope is in the gospel. It's not in government. See, what we should be fighting for is influence, not simply power. Influence comes from being living proof of a loving God to a watching world. Influence doesn't come from a title. It comes out of your life. And you see, Daniel rose in influence where he served an ungodly king who trusted him implicitly. Therefore, he brought godly outcomes even in an ungodly city. And I want to talk about that today. How do you personally, how do we as a church body rise in influence while living in a Babylonian society in Babylonian captivity with a society that's increasingly more pagan than Christian that reflects more of Babel than it does the Bible? What do we do? Well, number one is this. We learn from Daniel. First of all, he was holy. This was a man that lived a holy life. He never compromised his integrity. He never compromised his godly morality all of the days of his life. And because of that, he rose in influence because of the example of his life. He didn't just talk the talk. He walked the walk. And when you walk the walk and don't just talk the talk, listen, the world may not like you. They may not agree with you, but in some way they will respect you. And this is what happened in the life of Daniel. He pursued a life that was holy. It says in verse 8, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Here's what I love about Daniel. They could get Daniel into Babylon, but they could not get Babylon into Daniel. And this is what we need to learn from the life of Daniel. We are in this world, and even though we are in this world, we need to make sure the world is not in us. See, this is what Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 says, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, Nebuchadnezzar wanted to conform Daniel to his thinking. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to conform Daniel and these other Hebrew children to his Babylonian worldview and his Babylonian values. But do you understand, while Nebuchadnezzar could get Daniel into Babylon, he could never get Babylon into Daniel. He purposed in his heart. Now, I'm not going to, I may take your Babylonian name. Call me what you want. But I'm not going to do what Babylonians do. I'm not going to eat the king's delicacies. I'm not going to drink the king's wine. He was saying, I'm not going to get drunk at your Babylonian parties. I'm not going to eat the king's delicacies. I'm not going to cross the line. And you see, in the end, this is part of the reason why Daniel gained influence even when he had no title, he had no position, he had no power. And church, this is what we need now more than ever. It says in 1 John 2, 15, love not the world, neither things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And all that is in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world, and the world is passing away. And everything in it. The world is trying to conform us. But it says in Romans 8, 28, that God wants to conform you to the image of his son. And while God is trying to conform you to the image of his son, the world's trying to conform you to the image of them. And it has to do with our thinking. See, Daniel never forgot whose he was, so he never forgot who he was. And that's why while he was in Babylon, Babylon was never in him. Let me ask you, you are in the world, but is the world in you? It has to do with your thinking. And I want you to see that Daniel's life proved that a holy life is a happier life and a healthier life than a sinful life. See, this is why he rose in influence. What he proves is that a holy life is actually the healthier life and a healthier life and a happier life than a sinful life. Do you understand? God wants you to be happy, but more than being happy, he wants you to be holy. And this world is sometimes not happy. We live in a world that is cursed by sin, which means it's full of suffering, which is why there's never a command in Scripture that says, be happy, for I am happy. No, what it says is, be you holy, for I am holy. 
And the reality is that only as you pursue a life that is holy will you be truly healthy and happy. We live in a world where people try to be happy without being holy, so in the end they're neither holy nor happy. And you have this example in Daniel's life. Listen, what he's showing the Babylonians is truthfully a holy life is actually the better life. A holy life is actually a healthier life. A holy life is actually a healthy life. That's what he says now. Pick this up in verse 11. So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please... Test your servants for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. How would you like to have nothing but veggies and water for 10 days and still gain weight? I mean, at the end of 10 days, he's had nothing but veggies and water, and he appears fatter and healthier than all the others. Now, you need to understand something about the ancient days that's different than our days. So in our culture, skinnier is, quote, prettier. But in the ancient days, skinny was not considered pretty because skinny was not healthy. Do you understand that if you were a fitness model in the ancient days, like you'd have the best bod ever if you had a muffin top? <laughs> like it was considered a thing of beauty to have a little extra around the middle, because what it said is, man, that's a healthy, he's got enough to eat. He must be wealthy, and he's healthier. So at the end of 10 days, what's it say? They examined Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had nothing but veggies and water, and they appeared fatter. In their mind, hey, this is better. They say, what is Daniel proving? He's proving that a holy life is a healthier life, and actually a happier life. Now, it's important you know that in the ancient days, uh, Hebrews didn't eat pork. It was not on the list of things they could eat as part of the Levitical law. Now, the text doesn't tell us what the delicacy was that Nebuchadnezzar was feeding them, but in all probability, all the pagans of the ancient days ate pork. And there's a reason in the political law of the ancient Hebrews, they were not allowed to eat pork. There are ceremonial, theological reasons. God was using a metaphor to teach them clean and unclean, holy and unholy. But there are also practical reasons. God wanted his people to be healthy. And modern farming practices and modern cooking practices have changed the game. But in the ancient days, pork carried parasites. And so there's a reason, practically, God didn't want his people eating pork because it carries parasites. So there's a reason from eating veggies, when everybody else is eating pork, that he looked healthier because all these others were eating for two. If you get what I'm saying. I just read an article, really, just maybe two weeks ago, a very interesting article. Ar archaeologists had found an ancient latrine, actually more than one ancient latrine that dated from the 7th century B.C. with the Assyrian invasion of Judah as they besieged Jerusalem. Now, I know this is gross, but archaeologists love examining poop of ancient people because it can tell them a lot about ancient people. And as they examined these ancient latrines that dated from the seventh century BC with the Assyrian invasion, what they found was calcified, fossilized parasites in the poop. See, this is why ancient people, ancient Hebrews, were not allowed to eat pork, because I don't know how to say this without being gross and graphic, but the ancient pagans were wormy. All right, so Daniel's not wormy. That's why he looks better and fatter and healthier than all the others because as they're eating the delicacies, the pork, they're picking up friends. 
they're going to live with them and eat with them every time they eat. That's just the reality. Now, you need to know, in Acts chapter 10, God cleansed what was once unclean. You have Peter, the apostle, who was a godly Hebrew that had never had bacon in all of his life. He has this vision in Acts chapter 10 where God is now saying, you're under the new covenant. You're no longer under the old covenant. I'm cleansing now what was once unclean. Don't call unclean what I have called cleanse, which means as Christians, we're under the new covenant, which means if you want to enjoy some bacon, enjoy bacon. Bacon, it will make everything better. I'm just telling you. Yeah. I'm, I'm just telling you that because we live at a time, I don't know why, I've seen a lot of things come and go, trending in 20 years of leading a church and pastoring people. And for some reason, Gentile Christians, non-Jews, think that by eating kosher, I'm going to be closer to God. Like if I'm not eating pork, I'm going to be closer to God. And so you have a lot of people now putting themselves back under the old covenant and not eating pork as if that's going to make them closer to God when you're under the new covenant. And I'm just trying to tell you, if you don't want to eat pork, you got a choice not to eat pork, but I'm going to eat bacon. In fact, if you're not having a great day, go to First Watch, one of my favorite breakfast places now. They have something called Million Dollar Bacon. It will change your life. Life-changing. But you see, for Daniel, he said, uh-uh. Mm -mm. God's told me I can't eat this. God's told me I can't drink this. I'm not going to defile myself with a portion of the king's delicacies. He made his decision. He's going to pursue a life that was holy. Therefore, he shows the world that it's actually healthier and happier. Do you understand? We live in a world that's not Christian in their thinking. We live in a Babylonian civilization, no longer Judeo-Christian. And what that means is what social scientists call postmodernism. The postmodern thinker evaluates what is true by whether or not it works. Okay, so what this means for you and I, we need to be living proof, not with what we say, but rather what other people see, meaning we need to show the world that the Christian life is actually the better life, the healthier life. It's actually, in the end, the happier life. You see, it's not enough simply to say it's true. We need to show them that it works. Because in the end, how they're evaluating Jesus is not merely is Jesus true. What they're really asking is, does Jesus work? And this is what Daniel's now doing. What he's showing them is that it works. It's not simply true. And this is what social science has said. There was actually a survey done, a scientific survey done by the Washington Post recently. This, this was the conclusions. Regular church attendance dramatically improves your mental health. The only people in the U.S. whose mental health improved in 2020 were regular church attenders. Now, this isn't preacher propaganda. These are social scientists who came to the statistical conclusion I'm trying to tell you, following Jesus is the better life. It's hopeless out there. Everybody knows this is hopeless. That's why despair is in the air. There's a reason why the mental health of those who know and love Jesus is better than everybody else. A number of years ago, George Barna did a scientific survey, Barna being the premier religious researcher of our day, where he concluded, based on the statistics of the survey, that there was very little difference in lifestyle choices between those that profess Christ and those that don't profess Christ. Now, there's a real problem there when professing Christians live like pagans, Christian atheists. Yeah, it's an oxymoron. But then he began to drill down on this and began to put some metrics on what's it mean to be a Christian. Because anybody can profess Christ, but not everybody possesses Christ. Meaning there are a lot of Christians in name only. And so as he began to drill down on this, one of the metrics was, are you involved in a church? Are, are you engaged actively in a local church? And as he began to use that metric, it began to change. I mean, the, the gap widened right away in terms of lifestyle. Uh, regular church attendance significantly decreases all three of the big three dangers of adolescence, depression, substance abuse, and sexual promiscuity. Meaning your active engagement in a local church 
As you raise your children to know and love Jesus in a biblical community, the three big threats of adolescence in modern society, depression, substance abuse, sexual promiscuity, statistically goes down exponentially. Conservative Christians, meaning Bible-believing Christians, not politically, but theologically. That's what it means to be a conservative Christian. We simply believe the Bible. Conservative Christians who attend church regularly are 35% less likely to divorce. Church-going Christians are exponentially more generous to the poor with both time and money than the rest of the population. This comes right from the IRS. The IRS keeps records of charitable donations, and when you examine the charitable donations of a Christian, a follower of Jesus, with those that don't claim faith in Jesus, there is frankly no comparison There's a reason we have a food pantry back here that served over 40,000 individuals a year ago in our community because as a follower of Jesus, you love what God loves and God loves people, which means we're not gonna live selfishly, we're gonna live selflessly, which means we're gonna live generously. And this isn't, again, a Bible-thumping preacher. This is the stats of the IRS, See, I want you to see that what Daniel did in Babylon is what we have to do in our modern Babylon. By the way that we live, we want to demonstrate that a holy life is actually a healthier life. It's a happier life. Now, number two is this. Daniel was humble. We don't want to get all proud as a peacock because, I mean, (laughs) look at how generous we are. No, 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 wait a minute. Daniel wasn't only holy, he was humble. And because he was humble, he rose in influence when he had no title. He had no rights. Yet the most powerful man in the world went to him first when he needed advice. How would you like to be that person in your workplace that your boss goes to, not because you got a title, but because he trusts you? See, that was Daniel in Babylon as he would advise not just one king, but three kings in their inner circle. You see, Daniel was holy, but he did not have a holier-than-thou attitude. You know what I mean by that, to be holier-than-thou? Sometimes, you know, uh, I, I use, I use uh, figures of speech that, that I'm not sure the, the Gen Zs understand, all right? Because I'm in my 30s, I'm a millennial. <laughs> holier-than-thou, meaning you think you're better than everybody, your stuff don't stink, all right? Everybody get that? Here's the point. Daniel was holy. He pursued a life that is holy, but he didn't have a holier-than-thou attitude. Like he judged between right and wrong, good and evil, what was moral from immoral, but he learned to judge without being judgmental. You tracking? See, it has to do with attitude. He had a heart of humility. He wasn't there telling God's enemies that I'm better than everybody. And I want you to see, we see this in his appeal. Verse 11, so Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. I want you to notice something here. Daniel made a respectful appeal. He was neither angry nor defiant. And church, I'm sharing this with you today because in the last two years, as we observe what's happened in our society, even within the church, Christ's body, I'm telling you, there's enough angry people in the world already. Amen? We don't need to add to the number of the angry. Here's the reality. An angry, defiant church has no chance of reaching a city for Jesus. An angry, defiant Christian has no chance of sharing the gospel with their neighbors and coworkers. Now, it's not that there's not plenty of reasons to be angry. No, there's lots of reasons to be frustrated. There's lots of reasons to be angry. I mean, the injustice is everywhere. The wickedness is everywhere. A society that calls good evil, evil it calls good. Listen, I get it. There's lots of reasons to be frustrated and angry. I'm just saying, an angry, frustrated Christian has no chance of having influence with the gospel. It's not a good look for Jesus, and I've watched this happen. 
even within the church, I'm talking about even Christians angry at each other. We live in an age of what I've called ideological idolatry. Ideological idolatry says if one part of a narrative is true, it's all true. Or if any part of it's not true, then none of it's true. And so consequently, what is done is divide people into extreme positions, which brings division and hostility. It's ideological idolatry. Either you're completely with me or you're completely against me, and there's no compromise. There's no perspective. Consequently, there's no real critical thinking, meaning one part of a narrative can be true. It doesn't make it all true. Some of it might be false. It doesn't make it all false. Yet we live at a time where everybody's angry, and it's because of ideological idolatry. And I've seen it even within Christians who go on social media and blow each other up. And go to war for things that we shouldn't be fighting for, mask, no mask, vaccine, no vaccine, and we stand off and we square off against each other, and it's a bad look for Jesus. It's a bad look for the gospel. But you don't see that at all with Daniel. He, he was a captive to God's enemies. These Babylonians were not godly. They were the enemies of God, yet he never treated God's enemies like his own enemy. We're going to see this is, this is amazing. I mean, here's a guy, think about it. His world is turned upside down. If anybody had a right to be angry, it was Daniel. Everybody's watching the Ukraine right now. Just imagine if it was not the Russian army in the Ukraine. Imagine the Russian army being in Washington, D.C. They have burned down the Capitol. They have burned down the White House. Our nation is in collapse. It's being taken over by an outside army, and they are taking some of our children to Moscow. This was Daniel's experience. This was his life for real. And the moment he gets there, they make him a eunuch. All his dreams are gone. He'll never see his family again. He'll never see his country again. He'll never get married. He'll never have children. He's going to live the rest of his life as a slave with no rights in Babylon. Do you think he had a right to be angry? Read the book of Daniel. You never sense an angry and defiant posture and this is why he rose to such profound influence. Here's what I'm trying to say. It does no good to tell the ungodly we love them if they don't think we like them. Now, it doesn't mean that we just assimilate into Babylon and conform to Babylon. No, we can't do that. We won't do that. Uh, we will choose to be biblically correct in an age that is politically correct because political correctness is not biblical correctness. There's still right and wrong, good and evil, moral, immoral, holy, unholy. It's not that we make no moral judgments about what is right and wrong, but here's the point. If the ungodly think we don't like them, then what good does it do to say we love them? See, the reality is being angry at the ungodly is a really poor way to build a bridge for the gospel. I don't like you and you need Jesus. This wasn't what Jesus did. No, no, Jesus had a completely different method. Remember, Jesus was living proof of a loving God to a watching world. Colossians 1.15, he was the visible image of the invisible God. You want to know anything about God? Look no farther than the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, the world couldn't see God, so God sent them Jesus. The world can't see Jesus, so God sends them us. We are the body of Christ. Learn from Jesus. Look what he did. Luke 15, verse 1. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Understand, the sinners were the prostitutes. The sinners were the sexually immoral. The tax collectors were thieves. They were cast out of the temple. The Pharisees would have nothing to do with them, considered unredeemable. These are the very people that Jesus is now eating with. Do you understand by eating with them, he wasn't simply saying God loves them. What he was saying is God likes them. That was the implication. This is why the religious elite couldn't stand it. 
You have an ungodly person you work with. They, they live a radically different lifestyle than you. Why would, we ex- why would we expect ungodly people that don't have a godly worldview to act godly? I mean, think about it. I can tell you right now, if I was not a follower of Jesus, if I did not know who I am based on whose I am, my lifestyle choices would be radically different too. Are you tracking? Why would we expect anything different from them? Instead of acting like we don't like them, why don't you do what Jesus did and take them to lunch? See, what you're doing is building a bridge eventually for the gospel. What you're doing is overcoming those stereotypes of modern Christians that we're haters, that we're bigots, that we think we're better than everybody. See, we're ambassadors of Christ. We represent him. And this is what Jesus did as an ambassador of God. While living in Babylonian captivity, we are called to seek the peace and the welfare of our city and society. So Daniel is in Babylon as a captive, and actually he was in the first wave of deportees. There are actually three waves of deportations of Jerusalem to Babylon. The first one in 605 B.C., Daniel was in that first wave. The second one in 597 B.C., the last one being in 585 B.C. And now there are thousands of godly people. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the people of God, the ancient Hebrews, that are now living in this ungodly city. And they're asking the question, how do we live? I mean, do we live, you know, as, uh, you know as, as enemies? Do we lead an insurrection, a rebellion, or try to escape? What do we do? How do we live now in Babylonian captivity? So the prophet Jeremiah sent a letter to Babylon for the Hebrew captives to read to answer this question. How do we live now? And that letter that Jeremiah sent to Babylon became Jeremiah chapter 29. He's answering this question, how do we live in this ungodly city? Jeremiah 29, 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. And then he's going to say, hey, build houses, marry and bury, have sons, have daughters, plant vineyards, plant gardens, you're going to be there a while. But then he says this, verse 7, and seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. This had to be a radical, what? What are you asking us to do? We ought to be praying for the judgment of God upon this city. We ought to be praying that they're the enemies of God. God, get them. But that's not what God says to do. Oh, no. Now, don't worry. Jeremiah 25, he sent another letter, and what he says is at the end of 70 years, God's going to punish Babylon. He will. He's going to make all the wrongs right, but in the meantime, I want you to be people of peace. I want you to bring prosperity and peace upon this city, the shalom of God. That is what this word is, the peace of God, the shalom of God. If you go to Israel, this is what you hear on the street, shalom, shalom. You know what it means? Peace. Jerusalem, the city of peace. You know what God is teaching us? Matthew 5, a city set on a hill cannot be hid. The city of God is to invade the city of man. We're to bring peace upon our city. We're to pray for its welfare. This is why we have a food pantry, for the welfare of our city as people of peace, the shalom of God. This is why we're going to the crossroads and launching in the heart of our city next year to bring the shalom of God to the heart of the Kansas City metro. This is why we have these back-to-school supplies, and we minister to hundreds of people with back-to-school in tangible ways. This is why we have a ministry and a Christmas outreach fair every year and we do these Thanksgiving boxes where a thousand people bring a Thanksgiving dinner to give away to a thousand others. Why? Because we're called to seek the welfare and the peace of our city. This is who we are. This is our identity. Instead of taking a defiant posture toward the ungodly, we take a posture like that of the Son of God who said, I did not come to condemn the world, but that instead I've come to save the world. You see, that's who Jesus is. Listen, when peace is not possible, I want you to be prepared to be a martyr. 
You know what it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, as much as it be possible within you, live at peace with all men. But the implication is that peace is not always possible. And I can tell you personally, the hostility, the hatred is real. We're no longer mainstream as Christians living in the civilization. We've lost the home field advantage. And what that means is there are people that don't care how much food we give away at the food pantry. They don't care how much back-to-school supplies we give away to families in our city. They don't care how many backpacks that we fill up with food and send them back to the public school. There is nothing we can do to win some of them over because they hate God. They hate the gospel. They're going to hate the people of God. We're not responsible for that, which means... Well, the church in America has never had to suffer the days where you can follow Jesus and never have to suffer is over. Now, for Daniel, he was prepared to lose his life. He made an appeal. What if he lost his appeal? He'd already purposed in his heart, I'm not going to eat the king's meat. King, you can call me what you want. I'll take your Babylonian name. I'll serve in your Babylonian administration but I'm not going to compromise my integrity. He was prepared to lose his life, and he would have. He was prepared to be a martyr. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had a signature move with his enemies, those that he hated. You see this over and over again, this phrase, when he was really ticked off, and we'd call Nebuchadnezzar today a psychopath. I mean, this man had psychosis. I mean, he was, he was nuts. And what he liked to do is, I'm gonna cut you in pieces and make your house an ash heap. All right, so, so just, just chill out. You probably will not be cut in pieces for being a Christian, but you might be canceled. That's what it looks like in modern America. You might lose your job. You might not get that promotion. See, this is what it looks like now in modern America to be a martyr. Now listen, being a martyr is not the same as being a victim. See, being a martyr, a martyr is one whose life is given. A victim is one whose life is taken. Nobody took Jesus' life, he gave his life. I'm perfectly prepared to be a martyr, but I refuse to be a victim. Those aren't the same thing. Like, I just want to warn you ahead of time. You come to my house at night to do my family harm. We are going to war. My home is protected by three people, God, Smith, and Wesson. <laughs> it's only fair that you know ahead of time. We're going to war. See, Jesus is not a pacifist. This is a time of extremes. Either people walk around looking for a fight, looking for a brawl, or it's Christian pacifism. We should just fall on the sword and lay down and let people mow us over. That's not true on either extreme. There's a time to be a martyr and lay down your rights, and there's a time to fight for your rights. Fight for your family. Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 8 says there's a time for everything, even a time for war. Jesus is not a pacifist. Have you read Revelation 19? And I saw heaven open, behold a white horse, and he that sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness does he judge and make war. Oh yeah, he's coming back. And when he does, he's coming back as a warrior. He's going to make war on his enemies. Now I'm talking metaphorically, not simply literally. There's a time to make war. How do you know when? In the workplace, let's say when you've been treated unfairly? How do we know when as a church, let's say? When governing leaders aren't governing lawfully, let's just say, theor theoretically. <laughs> the words of Jesus have never been more important to modern American Christians. Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. What's Jesus teaching? First of all, we're to posture ourselves as doves. We're harmless. We're not here to hurt anybody. We don't want to fight anybody. We're here to help everybody. But he says, be wise. Be wise as a serpent. Don't misunderstand being harmless as not being dangerous. A serpent is very dangerous. But here's the deal. A serpent does not strike indiscriminately. A serpent only strikes when he's cornered. I don't mind telling you ahead of time. I would rather hug you than hit you, but if you make me hit you, I will hit you. 
and then hug you. Man, if you corner me, if I have no choice, we're going to war. I'd, I'd rather not. See, this is what Jesus teaches. If you go to war, though, be wise. Choose wisely when to stand for your rights, when to lay down your rights, when to fight for your life, and when to give your life. Be wise. And I've watched in the last two years the body of Christ sometimes not being very wise, fighting for the wrong things. You can win the battle and then lose the war. So we need to be wise. You say, Phil, how do I know when to draw the line? How do I know when to be, how do I be wise? Listen very carefully. It says in Proverbs 9 and verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Do you hear what it said? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What is the fear of the Lord? It is somebody like Daniel who's pursuing a life that is holy with a heart of humility, submitted to God's authority. You will live wisely. You will know when to go to war, and when to lay down your life if you're walking in the fear of the Lord. And this is what Jesus was teaching. Be wise. We are among wolves, a sheep among wolves. Everybody knows that wolves prey on sheep. When you go to work, where you go to school, listen, I used to work out there for eight years. I was a member of KCPD. It's not exactly a Christian workplace environment. Guys, I know what you're going through out there. I used to go through the same thing. Now I go to work with mostly godly people that love Jesus, mostly. I worry about some of them. Chad Glover. Of course you know I'm kidding. No, I remind our staff all the time, we live in a bubble. We carry our own stresses, believe me. Life in the ministry would be the ultimate reality TV show. I'm like, sometimes, where's the cameras? <laughs> this can't be happening. But it's a different kind of stress. I understand the stress you go to living in a, in a place and going to work for 40 or 50 hours a week, and, and you are all alone. And I just want to prepare you, because the church in America has never really had to suffer. We know very little about persecution. But do you know what it says in 2 Timothy 3.12? All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You will. I promise you, I know what I'm talking about. I made the decision. You do not preach the kind of messages I have preached from Daniel chapter 1 and face no opposition. The hostility is real. The hatred is real. Because all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We are sheep among wolves. And as Jesus was preparing his disciples to go out, these are the words he was saying in the same sermon. He said in verse 22, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Are you willing to be hated for the name of Jesus? See, historically, we never had to wonder. We never had to make the decision. Historically, we could straddle the line that never really existed with one foot with Jesus and one foot in the world. And we were mainstream, and Christianity had the home field advantage in this Judeo-Christian civilization. Those days are over where following Jesus will cost you nothing. I fully expect for people to try to cancel me. I fully expect for people to try to cancel our church. The things we believe is so reprehensible now to modern American society for doing nothing more than simply believing what Christians have always believed for 2,000 years. We haven't changed anything. We just believe what Christians have always believed. Are you prepared to be hated? Listen, I would rather be hated by this world and loved in heaven. I would rather be hated by men and loved by God than hated by God and loved by men. The reputation of this world is fleeting. The recognition of this world is fleeting. But the reputation of heaven will last forever. Are you prepared to suffer? Church, I just wanna prepare you the days ahead for Christians like us, years ahead, there's legislation right now in Washington, D.C. Potentially, if it's passed, it's a game changer. This is why Canadian pastors have been arrested. Pastors in the U.K. have been arrested for doing nothing more than preaching on biblical marriage. 
haven't hated anybody, but it's called hate speech. But this I know, Daniel was prepared to be a martyr. He was prepared to give his life in Babylon. You know why? Because he'd already given his life before he got to Babylon. See, nobody can take anything from you when you've already given it away. And this is how you start to live fearless. When you've already given it all away, nobody can threaten you with anything. They can't take anything from you. When you've already laid down your life, what more can they take from you? And this is why Jesus would go on, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Imagine the sinless, eternal son of God, the Messiah, being called Satan. Beelzebub is the name of Satan, and he was accused of being demonically possessed Jesus was accused of being satanic, and Jesus was teaching, listen, if they call me Beelzebub, what do you think they're going to call you? Bigot, hater, intolerant, immoral. Jesus was teaching, why would we expect anything less than what he got? Yeah, he was a friend to those who weren't like him. He was a friend to those who lived in sin. But in the end, they crucified him. Therefore, do not fear them. He says, don't fear them. They can't take anything from you that really matters because they can't take anything from you that will last forever. For there is nothing covered, he says, that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. All the wrongs one day are gonna be made right. Promises delayed are not promises denied. You don't need to keep score because God is. God's got this. See, Daniel had influence because he was holy, he was humble, and check this out. He was hopeful. He was hopeful. Though he learned to stand alone. Don't you love this graphic? Chad shared this last week. One of these dots are not like the others. Come on, can you guess which one? I love the way Chad is raising his daughters with Chelsea, raising them to be godly in a Babylonian society. I'm so proud of many of your families, many of you moms and dads that came a week ago dedicating your little ones to the Lord. We're gonna raise them to know and love Jesus in a world that doesn't know and love Jesus. But what that means is we're gonna walk alone. You gotta be okay with walking alone where you work, there are days you're gonna feel alone. Where you go to school, there's days you're gonna feel alone. I'm not like everybody else. I've called to be different. Daniel was different. He stood out. And I would suggest he could do that because he was more than holy, he was more than humble, he was hopeful. Listen, we ought to be the most hope-filled people in a hopeless generation of anyone in our nation. Do you understand as Christians, we should never be without hope? And I'm telling you this because I, I've heard a lot of Christians, people who follow Jesus, I mean, it's this doom and gloom and the dark cloud is descending and the world's going to hell in a handbasket. There's no hope. What are you talking about? Have you read the end of the book? Have you read the end? God wins, yes, in this parenthesis of time, righteousness is retreating, wickedness appears to be winning, but I'll promise you, if you're on God's side, you're on the winning side. It's not about getting God on your side, it's about getting you on God's side, and when you're on God's side, you win in the end, which means we can be the most hope-filled, optimistic people on the planet. And I'm trying to tell you, if you want to bring the next generation with you, you want to raise up your children to follow Jesus all the days of their life. They're watching mama, they're watching daddy. And if you don't have an hope-filled, optimistic attitude, why would they follow? Nobody wants to be a part of a losing cause. I mean, has God died? Or is Jesus alive? Then why do we act as though God has died and there's no longer any hope? No, listen. 
Daniel had hope for 70 years because he knew how it was going to end. He knew God would perform all that he promised. It says this in verse 21, the chapter ends this way. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus, King Cyrus of Persia. You know why Daniel was so hopeful when there's otherwise no reason to have any hope? Because there was a prophet named Isaiah that 150 years before Daniel, 150 years before Cyrus was even born, nobody had ever heard of a king named Cyrus, yet this Hebrew prophet wrote this in Isaiah 44, 28, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Daniel went to Babylon with that promise in hand. I don't know who Cyrus is, but one day there's a king called Cyrus, and he's going to let us go back home to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And I want you to see that the Bible alone can boast a prophecy that we can say historically was fulfilled literally what other book on the planet can make that boast? This prophecy written 150 years before Cyrus was even born. You see, Daniel knew how it was going to end. I don't know who Cyrus is. I don't know where he's coming from. But one day there's a king that's going to come named Cyrus. He's going to release the captives from Babylon. He had the promise of Jeremiah 25. Then it will come to pass when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation and the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. Do you understand that Daniel was hope-filled instead of hopeless because he knew what God has promised and he was utterly convinced that God would perform everything as promised. Church, we ought to be full of hope in a world that is hopeless. God's never lost. And we may lose some battles along the way, but in the end, we win. God is raising up a remnant. There's a remnant rising right now, as there was in Babylon. Revival follows the remnant rising. There was revival in Jerusalem 70 years later. I'm trying to tell you there's a lot of reason to hope. God is moving all over our land in churches like this one all over our country. There's a reason to be hope-filled. There's a reason to be optimistic. And one day Jesus Christ will come again. And paradise lost is paradise regained. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are full of hope. Let me ask you, have you placed your faith in Jesus? Because if you have not, you have no reason to hope. This is the best it will ever get. Have you placed your faith in him? If not, today can be the day. There's gonna be people right here at this platform. If you wanna know more about that, you need to come this way. Those are going that way. Jesus, I pray for every person here today, God in heaven, that you send us out as sheep among wolves, that we'd be wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove, as Daniel in Babylon, holy, humble, and hopeful. I pray blessing over every family, every individual here today. That God, your spirit would be strong in us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, I love you very, very much, and I hope you have a super blessed Sunday. God bless you. God go with you. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure and subscribe and share with a friend. We hope today's message inspired and challenged you. Let's go be living proof of a loving God to a watching world. For more information about Abundant Life, visit livingproof.co or follow us on social media at Abundant Life LS.